We are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And we're continuing to talk about what it means to make progress in our walk with Christ, no matter our circumstances. When our daughter Kaylee was a newborn baby, I was pastor of a very small church, the church I grew up in, and that meant that I had a little freedom. And so I was able to make most of Kaylee's uh, well child exams. When, when a newborn comes into the world, the pediatrician wants to see her quite often. And there's shots to administer and there's checkups and all this stuff. I went to all of her well child exams that first year except for one. And I remember at one of those well child exams, the doctor told me, I need to give her this shot, so I need for you to hold her still. So I had to hold her down on that little, you know, that little butcher paper, right, where they're making a sandwich that they're gonna give you on the way out. And I had to hold her down while he gave her a shot. Now here's, here's something you need to know. When my daughter was newborn, we have a great relationship now, but when she was newborn, she did not like me at all. Now she liked Carrie somewhat. She, she was like, okay, you're useful. You know what you're doing. This one, the big hairy one, he knows nothing. He's no, he, he doesn't even have milk. So there's nothing he can do for me. And yet in that moment, she somehow instinctively knew that I was supposed to be the one that protected her. I mean, what else, what else could I do, right? I, I didn't do anything else right. Surely you're like the bouncer, the, the bodyguard. So as I held her down and she was screaming and crying, these big brown eyes looking up at me, I could see in those eyes the, the question, why are you doing this to me, right? What, what kind of man are you that you would allow this, allow Dr. Voldemort here to uh, abuse me the way that you are? Now, I think about that a lot when I think about how we as Christians respond to painful circumstances because God knows what we're going through and God weeps alongside us. And God does not like to see us suffer. And yet he has a purpose. We know that God could stop it, right? Just like I could have shoved the pediatrician out of the way and picked up my baby and taken off. And yet God knows I'm going to allow this pain for a purpose. And he can't explain that purpose to us because that's the distance between, the, distance, the intellectual distance between me at 28 and, and, and my newborn is not even comparable to the distance between God and us. He could try to explain to us why we're going through this. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it. And so what we do instead is we respond in one of two ways when we go through times of pain and suffering. And by the way, as a pastor, I know many of you are going through times of pain and suffering right now. And I know that what I know is not even the half of it. So there are probably people here this morning going, oh man, I didn't want to talk about this. I didn't want anybody to know I'm struggling, but I know you are. God knows you are. And we usually respond in one of two ways. We either say, we either get mad at God. God, how can you do this to, to me? Like little Kaylee looking up at me. What, what's the matter with you? Why don't you show up? Which, by the way, has a great history. You read the Psalms. Many of David's Psalms are Psalms of lament, Psalms of complaint. He wrote more of those kinds of Psalms than the, than the ones that we sing about in, in church. And the book of Job where Job's three pious friends show up and say, Job, you can't say these kinds of things about God. And Job's so angry, he says, I don't care if God's mad at me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to him and, and just demand that he show up and tell me why this is happening. So if you're angry at God, you're in good company, scripturally speaking. The other way we tend to respond is we assume God is mad at us. We assume that we've done something to earn his wrath and we're being punished. 
So let's look at what Peter says about this in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter is writing to a group of people who, as we've shared already in the series, they have it harder than we do. They're very much the minority in their culture. They are marginalized, ridiculed, and yet Peter knows that things are about to get worse. They are about to experience for the first time real persecution. Some of them might go to jail. Some of them might be physically assaulted. Some of them might even be martyred for the faith. And his word to them is, don't be surprised when it happens. So it goes against this notion that a lot of us just think and that it gets sold to us by contemporary Christianity that says that if you go to church and you have enough faith and you do the right things, then you'll be exempt from suffering. That's not biblical. That is not ever promised in the scriptures. And Peter acknowledges it here. Don't be surprised when it happens. It's also incorrect. So yeah, again, you can be angry with God and God's not gonna be upset with you for that. He knows you feel what you feel, but just understand, God has not failed you. He has not broken faith with you. As the song says, he won't. He won't fail you. He won't abandon you. But on the other hand, you're also not correct to assume that you're being punished for some crime you've committed. And here's why I know that. In the, in the Bible, there are times when God uses physical circumstances, physical pain to punish people, to discipline people who have sinned. And every single time, you can go in the scriptures and check me, all right? If you find a place where I'm wrong, please come tell me, and I mean that. But everything I know in the scriptures is when people in the Bible are being disciplined by God, they know it. There's nobody in the Bible that says, well, God must be punishing me, but I have no idea why. They always say, well, the prophet said if we went this direction, this is what would happen. And we went this direction. And guess what? The prophets were right. Or I know that I did this terrible thing and therefore I'm experiencing the consequences. God is letting me experience the consequences of my choices. See, as a parent, I know this. I know that when my kids were little, I didn't just go around giving them spankings for no reason, right? If, if I just walked up, the, uh, walked up behind them randomly and just whacked them in the rear end, what would it teach them? Just that dad's a big jerk, right? It wouldn't teach them obedience. It wouldn't teach them uh, righteousness. They have to know why they're being punished or it's not real discipline. And God is a, is a far better parent than I or than you. So if you are going through a time of pain and you don't know why it's happening, you can be sure it's not because of anything you did because if it was, God would let you know. There are things that happen in this world that are bad because we live in a world that's messed up and it's as simple as that. So what should we do? See, Peter told them, he was was reminding them of what Job found out. You know the story of Job, right? I won't recap it, but... 
Job's story tells us that whenever we go through a time of suffering or pain, it's, it's a battle for our soul. The devil would love to use that time to draw us away from God, make us so angry with God that we will leave him forever. Whereas God is hoping to use that time to build something beautiful in us. He's not gonna waste one ounce of our pain. So what should we do? See, Peter's advice to us is rejoice. Rejoice in times of suffering, which doesn't make any sense from a human point of view. And I'll just testify, this is not something I'm good at, certainly not something I'm a professional in, but it's something the word commands over and over again. Rejoice in times of suffering, rejoice in times of pain. How can we become those kinds of people? Well, there's three things I want you to pray. So if you're a note taker, I wanna urge you to pray, to, to write down these three quick prayers to share. And if you're not, become one, because you know what? Painful times are coming for all of us. So here are things I think we should pray whenever we go through times of struggle. Number one, Lord, use this to refine me. When verse 12, when he says the word fiery trial, it, it simply, it's simply, it's a Greek word noun that means the burning. And it's a reference to the fact that uh, when, you, when you refine metals, you use, you use heat. You take a piece of ore out of the ground and it's got, you know there's iron in it or gold or bronze and you have to melt it down. And then the impurities rise to the top and you skim those off. And you do that over and over again. You keep melting that metal and skimming off the impurities until finally it is 100% pure. And then and only then can it be useful. And what Peter is talking about is when we go through these times of pain, God can use those moments to shape us and mold us into the people we have always wanted to be. To get rid of uh, sins in our hearts and, and weaknesses and flaws that we've been unable to shed, but then we go through this time of pain and that refining fire changes us, but only if we let it. We can become resentful or we can come to God and say, Lord, don't waste this. Use this in my life. Lord, use this to refine me. And, and you might say, Jeff, I still don't understand how you can take joy in suffering. And what I say to you is, yes, you do. Because you do it in other areas of your life. If you're an athlete, if you've ever been an athlete, right? If you've ever played team sports and you've experienced a long, grueling practice and you get done and it went longer than usual, coach kept you on the field longer than usual and, and you're worn out and you're tired and you're frustrated and, and you're like, man, I'm glad that's over. But at the same time, if you really care about winning, you rejoice in that because you say, we worked out some things on that field tonight. We're gonna do better in the next game. If you've ever been a musician, you've been in a band or an orchestra or a choir, you know what it's like to have a, a long and intense rehearsal where, where you know, the guy in charge gets a little angry and yells at you a couple of times and hey, how come you can't hit this note? And, and at the end of it, yeah, yeah, you hope you never have another rehearsal like that, but you're also confident the next concert's gonna be good. The next time we lead worship, we're gonna nail it because we worked it out. We fixed some mistakes. You know what it is to rejoice in suffering. If there's anything in your life you care about, you've rejoiced in something difficult because it produced something good. Let me put it this way. Imagine two middle-aged guys, let's call them Joe and Bob. No, they do not reflect any real life Joe or Bob, so don't get excited. Uh, but imagine middle-aged Joe and Bob decided they wanna get in shape. And so they make an agreement, they go see a nutritionist, they go see a trainer, they come up with a personalized plan for each one of them. On Monday morning they get up and they start 
running or, or lifting weights on alternating days. They start eating a restricted diet, about 1,000 calories a day less than they've been used to eating. They cut out sugar, they cut out fats, they cut out all kinds of fried foods. And, and at the end of about three or four days, Joe comes to Bob and says, I am done with this. I am quitting. I will never do this again. Every muscle in my body is in dire pain. I'm 38 years old. I feel like I'm 98 years old. I, I'm starving to death. I, I miss the foods that I enjoy. I don't like any of the foods I'm eating now. I hope I never see a grilled chicken breast the rest of my life. I am done. And Bob says, I, I'm loving this. I, I'm loving this. I, he feels that pain and he thinks, all this soreness means I'm getting stronger. And this hunger that I feel when I go to bed at night, that means I'm actually losing weight. I, it's not gonna be long before I'm gonna come home and my wife is gonna look at me in a way she hadn't looked at me in a long time. And I'm gonna look in the mirror and I'm gonna like what I see and that hadn't happened in a while. And, and I'm gonna go see the doctor for my annual checkup and he's gonna say, Bob, keep doing what you're doing because it's working. You're adding years to your life. You see, the difference between these two men is what's most important to them. What's most important to Joe is being comfortable. Yeah, he'd love to be in better shape as long as it doesn't mean sacrificing any comforts. As long as it doesn't mean eating things he doesn't like and getting up early and doing things he doesn't enjoy. Whereas Bob, his main thing is, I wanna get healthy. I wanna see my kids grow up. I wanna, I wanna be able to get down on the floor when I have grandkids and play with them and then get back up again. See, pain has a way of exposing what's really most important. Pain has a way of exposing what our true idols are. And if the point of your life is to become just like Jesus, to glorify God and experience all there is to be a follower of Christ, then you'll come to rejoice in times of suffering because you'll start to see every time I struggle, something good comes out of it. But if your main thing is anything else, then you will hate suffering and you will never be able to redeem it. And the idea of rejoicing in times of suffering will seem ridiculous and blasphemous. So pray, Lord, refine me. When I'm struggling, don't waste it, but use it to refine me. Second prayer, Lord, help me to get closer to you. In verse 12, in, I'm sorry, when verse 13, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And that strikes us as odd because we don't think that way. I don't know any Christians who walk around saying, oh, what I'd really like to do is, experiencing some, is experience some little bit of what Jesus experienced for me on the cross. I just wanna, I just wanna feel just a, a little bit of that pain so I can identify with him. And yet that's entirely biblical. And you say, well, wait a second, Jeff. I thought Jesus suffered so we don't have to. And in a sense, that's true. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says, but, great conjunction there, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah 53 very famously says that he, he suffered for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, that God put the punishment for our peace upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And you know what that means? That means that when we stand in judgment before our Lord and Savior and he pulls out the record of our lives, it's gonna be a clean slate 
because Jesus has already taken our punishment. And it means that when we walk alongside him on the new earth, there's never ever gonna, ta- gonna come a time when he's gonna say, okay, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. Remember that day when you did that stupid thing? Remember that day when you disgraced me? Remember that day when you hurt those people? It's never gonna happen because it's all been paid for. Hallelujah, that is wonderful news. It does not, however, mean that we are exempt from suffering and pain in this life. And in fact, Jesus was upfront with us about that. In, Mar- in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus gives his invitation, his classic invitation, and it's so different than the way preachers like me tend to do it. I remember when I was a young preacher boy and I realized, man, Jesus doesn't invite sinners like I did because I used to say, hey, it's easy to be a Christian. All you have to do is walk this aisle and pray this prayer and you're in the club. And yet here's what Jesus said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And when Jesus said, take up his cross, take up my cross, he wasn't talking about a religious ornament. A cross was never seen as a religious ornament until long after the Bible was finished being written. It was always an instrument of execution. Jesus was saying, if you wanna follow me, be ready to die for me. The great 20th century martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said it this way in his book. He said, when Jesus bids a man, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus was being upfront. There is a cost to pay when you follow me. There will be pain as a result. Watch out. And the early church understood this. In Philippians 3.10, Paul wrote, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What on earth does that mean? I think it means that Paul is saying, when I suffer, when I struggle, I want to identify with what Jesus did for me on the cross. I want it to bring us closer together. That's what I want more than anything else. Paul wasn't asking for God to put him through terrible things. He was saying, when I go through terrible things, I pray that you would use it to draw us closer together. Here's another way to look at it. Imagine you are injured and you get confined to a hospital bed for weeks. Now I can tell you, not that I've ever been hospitalized for weeks, but I can tell you from visiting people, I can tell you from what limited amount of physical suffering I've had, there is something very, very isolating about pain. So when you're in pain, you feel all alone. Nobody gets me, nobody understands me, and especially if nobody comes to see you. But imagine you're stuck in that hospital bed for weeks and there's one friend who shows up every day. And every time you open your eyes in that hospital, he or she is sitting there. And they go and they get you things or they pray with you or they they read you scripture, whatever you want. But mostly they just sit there. They're just there for you. After three or four weeks, do you think you're you're gonna love this person more? Do you think you're gonna be closer to this person? You're gonna form a bond with this person like nothing else you have with anybody else in the world? Yeah, unless, unless you choose to just focus on your pain instead of this person who's there for you. Unless you just say, oh, forget them, I'm just gonna fixate on what's happening to me. I'm gonna wallow in a shallow pool of my own self-pity and I'm gonna kinda resent them for not suffering the way I'm suffering. And then you waste it. But Jesus is there for you every single day and he is with you in your suffering. And you can grow closer to him than you've ever been. I know a a guy uh, years ago, College athlete, fantastic athlete, destined, we all thought, for a career in professional sports. And eventually he did reach that. 
But when he was in college, in his senior year, he blew out his knee. And that meant, at the time, his career was probably over. Not only that, he was in incredible pain for weeks. And he lay there in his bed, and he looks back on that time, and he says, that's when I realized that the girl I was dating needed to be my wife. I needed to ask this girl to marry me. Because if there was a time for her to walk away, it would have been then. Because if she was just dating me because she wanted to be married to a professional athlete, she would have said, I'm out. There's no way he's he's gonna play professional sports and make all this money, I'm out. But instead, she was there. And she was there for me every day. Every, every day she came over to my apartment and took care of me until it was time for me to go to bed. And I knew this is the one. Now for me, myself, here's, here's a story about, about my life. Not that my suffering compares to his, but uh, 30 years ago tomorrow, Carrie and I got married. That's right, tomorrow's our 30th anniversary. And I'm very excited about that. But, but when we first got married, we thought everything was gonna be great because we we're these two Christian people who tried to do everything right and we were madly in love and it did not go well, not go well at all right at first. And we were miserable with each other and add on several other things to it. And so there I am, 21, 22 years old, and for the first time in my life, really, really struggling. Really, really waking up in the morning going, I don't know what to do. And yet, I look back on that time and I rejoice in it. You know why? Because it was during that time when I really learned to read scripture, when I really heard God speak for the first time and knew what he was saying. And that was the period of time when I really understood my calling. That's when God revealed to me that I was to go into vocational ministry. And I always wonder if instead, Carrie and I had had the, the standard first year where it's just honeymoon every day, and everything would have gone my way if I would have heard God's voice at all and known what he wanted me to do. I think, it took, I think it took pain to be that megaphone through which God shouted at me and said, hey, go here instead of there. And I rejoice in that time. Pray, Lord, help me to get closer to you in those times of suffering. And then finally, number three, Lord, fill me with hope. The rest of verse 13 says, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What does he mean, when his glory is revealed? What's he talking about? Raise your hand if you think you know. I won't call on you, but raise your hand if you think you know what he means. Okay, not many of you. Here's what he means. He means the day Christ returns to earth. That's when God's glory is fully revealed. And I'll I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. Christians in the first century, those apostles and the people who followed them, they weren't like us. Their hope wasn't in, yeah, someday I'm gonna gonna make this much money and I'm gonna buy a house this size. Or yeah, someday I'm gonna have kids and it's gonna be greater. Someday I'm gonna have grandkids. Someday I'm gonna gonna retire. Christians back then didn't hope in any of that stuff because they knew that none of that stuff was promised. You know what else? Christians back then, the first generation, they didn't sit around and say, yep, Someday I'm gonna die and go to heaven and it's gonna be wonderful. That wasn't their hope either. Their hope was when Christ returns and remakes this world and he's the king of this earth and it's remade in his image, that's when things are gonna be the way they should. That was their hope. Their hope was in the return of Jesus Christ. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping in. And that's what kept them going. That's why Christians could be nailed to crosses, could be, could be tied to stakes and set on fire, could be thrown to wild beasts, could be stoned, could be tortured and not give up because they knew that was waiting for them. They knew what was ahead and that's what brought them hope. 
And when you have hope, you can stand anything. Admiral James Stockdale, back in, during the Vietnam War, he was the highest ranking American uh, officer to be, to be held prisoner by the North Vietnamese. And, and much later he was interviewed and they said, what did you learn in your time there? He said, I learned the difference between optimism and hope. He said, every man I knew who was in, they called it the Hanoi Hilton, the, the, Viet, the North Vietnamese prison. He said, every, every optimist I knew in the Hanoi Hilton died. They couldn't make it because they would tell themselves, we're gonna get out by Christmas, I just know it, and then it wouldn't happen. And then they'd say, okay, but we're gonna get out by July 4th, and then it wouldn't happen. And by the next Christmas, they were dead because their, their hearts were broken, they, they gave up. Optimism won't sustain you. Blind faith that something good's gonna happen is not enough, but hope, hope in something real, that will sustain you. He said, Everybody, every man who had hope made it home. Because they said to themselves, we live in the greatest country on earth. There's no way they're gonna leave us here. Our government is gonna make sure we get home. And our family and our friends, they're praying for us to get home. And our God is not gonna, he's not gonna turn down those prayers. He's gonna answer them. We are going home someday. And we did. Hope, hope can sustain you. Hope is better than optimism. Think about two people in adjoining hospital rooms. So one is a man who just got drunk one night and challenged a whole family of rednecks to a fist fight. And he's got broken bones and he's got contusions and he's in terrible pain. And in the other room is a young woman who's having a baby for the first time. who's in labor with her first child. Now let me ask you something, which of those two can handle their pain better? Which of those two has a better attitude about their pain? I know, I know it's the woman who's giving birth. Why? Not just because she's a woman and women have this weird, sneaky kind of toughness when it comes to medical things. I've seen it, I've visited hospitals, I know it's true, but more so because her pain is producing something. Her pain is leading to something. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that the world is in labor, right? The world is in the midst of labor pains because it is giving birth to a better world. You and I have this incredible hope because we know, we know that no matter what happens, every day we live, we're one day closer to that perfect world. So if tomorrow is the worst day of your life, even if nothing good happens, when you lay your head on the bed tomorrow night, you can say, I never want to do that day again, but I'm one step closer, one day closer to the world I've always wanted to live in. Paul comes back to that same point from a different angle in verse 17. He says, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those of, who do not obey the gospel of God? What is he talking about? I believe what he's saying is, if we think our suffering is bad, think about the people who don't know Jesus. Because they're suffering too. And they don't have the hope that we have. Think about it. When we lose things in this life, we know we're getting them back someday. Your loved one dies, it's terrible, but you'll see them again. You, you lose money, Jesus said anything you lose in this world, you'll get hundredfold in the next. Your body starts to wear out and die, yeah, that's gonna happen, right? You reach that tipping point where no matter how many push-ups you do, no matter how much moisturizer you apply, it's not getting any better. And yet someday you're getting a body that doesn't wear out and doesn't get sick and doesn't get old and doesn't die. And people who don't have Christ don't have any of that. They lose things and they're gone forever. They lose loved ones and they'll never see them again. 
Their bodies crumble and they're like, What's, what am I to do? I'll, I'll, never, I'll never have joy. I'll never have happiness again. See, there's a difference between hope and uh, between sorrow and despair. All of us experience sorrow. The, the greatest Christian in this room experiences sorrow. Sorrow is what's happened, what happens when you lose, when you lose something that you, that's really important to you. But you get over sorrow. You find a way. God's comfort, he's the God of all comfort. He gets you beyond it. He gets you through grief. Despair is different. Despair is when you can't go on. Despair is when I don't have strength to get out of bed. Despair is when you'd rather die. And as Christians, we have hope. So yeah, we go through sorrow, but we don't have despair because hope gives us a reason to go on. Because hope, we know that this world is giving birth to something better. See, the day I missed an appointment for Kaylee, the one appointment I missed, that happened to be the day where they gave her a whole bunch of shots and they burned her umbilical cord off. See, most, most kids, their umbilical cord falls off on its own. For some reason, hers didn't. They said, okay, we gotta take care of this, and they burned it off. So when I saw my wife later that day, she said, never do that to me again, because she had to go through that by herself. And she also said, the whole time, I was thinking, I wish I could, I, I wish I could go through it instead of her. I wish they were doing that to me so they wouldn't have to do that to her. And I knew she meant it. I mean, that's a mother's love, but that's the love of God. And it's the love of God because he did trade places with us. God in human flesh came down to earth just so that he could take our pain and our suffering, our ultimate suffering. He took their, our ultimate suffering so we could have the glory that he deserved. And that's why a man like Paul, a man who suffered more than any person in this room will ever suffer, could write a sentence like this from 2 Corinthians, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Yeah, there's gonna come a day when even the worst thing you've ever gone through, you look back and think, it's all right. It didn't last that long and it was worth it. It produced something beautiful. Or as the great theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, and I love this, he said, God weeps with us so that someday we will laugh with him. So if you ever doubt, and you will at times, that God is a God of love, when the world seems to be caving in on you and you're losing all these things that you think you can't live without, if you ever think, God, God doesn't really love me, just think about the cross. Think about what he endured, and he didn't have to. He did it just for you. And in those moments, you can look forward and say, someday I'm gonna laugh with my heavenly father, and I will laugh and laugh like I've never laughed in this life. 